Okay, we are going to uh, get started. We're going to finish promptly at uh, 3 o'clock. Um, so let's take some questions. Or, as I like to call them where I'm from, questions. That's French for... It's the only French I know, I think. All right, question? The quantum theory, and uh, I guess the... Um, theory where the observer would look at what's happening and it would change based off the observation, right? Yeah. Um, you know, people like Doug Ham would say that it's probably scientists finally discovering what true faith is. Um, and actually, you know, if they believe probably something outside of their logics and they would see the true, um, I guess, um, the true act of um, the light that's going through there. So what are just your thoughts about that and, you know, how to, like, you know, scientists that still can't explain what it is and how it yeah. happens? So there's uh, different experiments, but the, you might be talking about the double slit experiment where um, they send, um, when you send particles, well, what we thought were particles, through a double slit, uh, very, so we're talking about, Imagine uh, like a wall and there's just two slits, okay? But we're going real small, real small. And um, what ends up happening is you send these particles through. And when we observe them going through, you can actually watch, okay, the particles going through this slit or this slit. And you get a certain pattern on the walls. Let's imagine they're like, these are like tennis balls and they like stick to Velcro on the other side. So you get like some here and some here. Well, it turns out when you don't observe, or maybe it's the opposite, I'm trying to, so you don't observe and you send them through, what you don't get slit here and a slit here. You end up with something really weird. It's an interference pattern, which you get uh, like from waves. So if we had two slits in a water tank and I started making these waves coming and they'd go through the slit, the slits, and they'd make this really cool pattern. Um, and I guess that's just, I wish I had some slides to show you what I'm talking about. So it'd be better to, to get an idea. But uh, you can just look up the Thomas Young double slit experiment um, on YouTube and see this, this uh, effect. And man, it's got a lot of physicists just scratching their head because is the particle acting like a particle or is it acting like a wave? Um, we just don't know. It's the same as with light itself. Light, we don't know what it is. Light sometimes acts like a particle, sometimes acts like a wave. Um, so, and I think what you're asking is, man, this has scientists, it means science is supposed to be about, well, this is the way it is, and this is the way it is, and here are the facts. I don't need any, I don't need faith. I can just figure things out. Well, it turns out here, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the cause of these things are, and is there like quantum effects causing this? And we, I mean, we just don't know. Uh, we're very, we're limited right now. And, and so there's this, uh, some people think of faith as well. So you have, here's what you know, and then past that, you just got to have some faith. And I think that's kind of what faith is, but kind of not what faith is. I think real biblical faith isn't just about, okay, I, don't, I know this stuff, and now I don't know, so I got to insert my faith. That's almost like a blind faith, right? And I actually think that science atheistic scientists end up having to assert a whole lot of blind faith. And that's not the kind of faith I have. The kind of faith I have 
is faith that is grounded in evidence and it is a response. It's a way of not knowing. It's a way of trusting. Faith is, um, the, the, the word we should be using is trust. Because in, in our culture, you use the word faith, people assume you're talking about blind faith. I don't know, therefore. Uh, or uh, belief what you know ain't true. Um, that's what um, Mark Twain said, right? Faith is believing what you know ain't true. It's believing contrary to the evidence. All the evidence says this, and you believe that, and so that's faith. No, no, no. You read the Bible, real faith um, is, is in light of all the evidence. You have all this evidence, and you rest your trust and your faith on top of it. Of course, it's, it, it's, it's faith in the sense that there's also hope involved. There's things that, you know, I know a lot of whole things to be true, but the resurrection that's to come, this is, you know, that's why in Hebrews 11 verse 1, it says, faith is the assurance, the evidence, the substance of things hoped for. Like there's a whole lot of evidence there, but you're going to, you're going to, and so you, you base um, your hope on that. Uh, so, um, so I might want to just make some distinctions. I think there's a whole lot of people who talk about um, faith in the sense that blind. And I think that atheists have to put, I mean, think about this. Non-life becomes life. We cannot explain that. Any sign, I mean, I can quote you. I have the quotes that say uh, from an atheistic scientist who says, anyone who tells you they know how the origin of life began is uh, what do you say? Is a knave, is naive. Like they don't know what they're talking about. He says, nobody knows how life began. I actually think I know how life began. It has to do with the creator, but that's not even in his realm of possibility. So he says, no one knows naturally how it began. He's right. Because it didn't happen that way. You have to believe life came from non-life. You have to believe everything came from nothing, no thing. Um, because time, space, matter, and energy came into existence from no thing. Not something called nothing like a quantum vacuum, which we could talk about too. Um, you have to believe that consciousness came from unconscious matter. You have to believe that morality came from m- molecules and matter. You have to, I mean, you just have to stack. Reason comes from irrational molecules just doing all of these things. And all of a sudden you have to, I mean, um, Norm Geisler, famous apologist, he wrote a book called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And that is pretty much, that sums it up. I don't have enough faith. Blind faith is what they're talking about there, to be an atheist. Real faith is the kind of thing like John talks about, John 20. Um, he says, this is right after Thomas, right? Uh, I wrote about this in a blog post yesterday. So if you go to the website, you can read about it. But um, Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And then John writes, commenting right after that, he says, um, many other signs were done in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. These kinds of signs, like appearing to Thomas and saying, put your hand right here. Put it right here. These signs are written. Why did you write them, John? Why did you write all your gospel, John? These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you'll have life in his name. John wrote his entire gospel as evidence that you and I would read. Remember Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe? 
He's not saying people, it's better if you just have no evidence and believe. No, he's not talking about that. He's saying there's people like the disciples. All the disciples got to see a risen Christ and they believed. You and I don't get that luxury. We don't get to see Christ, the risen Christ, and touch his wounds. But we, get, we have something different. We don't get to see and believe. We get to read and believe. And so he said, these are written so that you may believe. Believe. Have faith. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So does that make sense? So the, if John was anti-evidence and uh, for blind faith, he would have never wrote his gospel. He did the... So... He wrote his gospel, the whole purpose, the reason we can read it and read about J- Thomas and this, you know, how he doubted and everything else um, was for our benefit. So that's what real faith is. Uh, I tell people, it's kind of like this. You're standing at the edge of Niagara Falls. You guys have been to Niagara Falls. It's kind of cool. And uh, you're watching this magnificent waterfall. And um, you have a, there's a guy with a tightrope stretched across the two um, ends of the falls. And he's walking across. And he's hired by the falls. In fact, it's a true story. His name's Charlie Blondin. Read about him. Charlie Blondin, professional acrobat, no safety harness, doing all these tricks on a tightrope. One of them is he's got a wheelbarrow full of rocks and he's walking across a tightrope. And you're, you're watching him. He does it once and twice, five times, 10 times, 15 times in a row. And he sees you watching and he comes over and he says, do you have faith that I could do it again? And you say, well, I've seen you do it 15 times in a row now. Of course I have faith you could do it again. And then he takes the rocks, dumps them out of the wheelbarrow and says, okay, hop in. That's what biblical faith is. It's active trust, but it's based on evidence. I've seen you do it, but now I got to get in, right? It's, it's real trust. It's not just assent, belief. Even the demons believe. They're not saved. And so... Um, it's, it's beyond belief. It's, it's, uh, it's trust, but it's like commitment, active. Um, that's what real faith is. And as you read through the Gospels, that's what you see over and over again. John, in uh, Mark too, the healing of the, the uh, paralyzed man. They lower him through the roof, right? And, and Jesus says, your son, his son, your sins are forgiven. And they're probably thinking, sins are forgiven? We just took apart the roof to put this guy down in front of you so you'll heal him, not forgive his sins. And then what does he say? So that, this, so that you will know, that's an important word, you'll know, the Son of Man, speaking about himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and go. And he, he gets up. By the way, he asked another question there. He says, what's easier to do? Tell someone your sins are forgiven? Or uh, forgive sins or heal? And they're probably thinking, well, obviously, say your sins are forgiven. Because I could, right now, your sins are all forgiven. You have, you have no way of seeing if that was a transaction that just took place, right? People, your sins are all forgiven. Just trust me. No. It's easier to say that. It's not easier to say, oh, you're paralyzed? Get up. And just walk out the door. Because that, that's going to be the... And so here we have Jesus providing evidence for the act of forgiving sins. An invisible act. He shows them a visible healing. Jesus believed in evidence and uh, a uh, reasonable faith, a faith that trusts based on evidence. Okay, another question. Yeah. They got a mic for you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate the, the fact that you bring in evidence with the re- relational component. Yeah. Um, so my question is, um, when, uh, when having conversations with believers, um, sometimes I find it difficult to... Um, 
bring in logic and bring in evidence because yeah. everything is, should not be questioned. Um, but they have a strong, like you were saying, faith or yeah. faith. Sure. So what, it, what is a, an effective way of having conversations with, with belief, people challenge the church? them? What I would do is uh, uh, I, would, I would challenge them. Um, just like we talked about, not um, aggressively, but just if that's their view, that it's, it's all about, um, it's, it's the spirit and it's all about feeling and it's all about emotion and it's all about, the, and I'm not trying to downplay those things. I think those are important. I'm not, we're not robots. We're not just logical machines. We're, we need both of these things. And so uh, what I would do is, maybe ask them about some of this stuff. Because it turns out you need to, eventually you need to get to these, the, the logic of it. Um, and it's cer- it certainly, when you, read the, when you read the New Testament, when you read uh, church history, what you see is, man, these guys cared very much about getting, I mean, you read some of these, these creeds, the early creeds, they were, I mean, they were so careful to um, distinguish between this word and this word and this, and it was always very methodical and logical, and that was a serious part of their their uh, faith. Um, so I would just maybe talk about that, but to get them to think about it, you may just want to ask them a question about the Trinity or the Incarnation. Say, hey, you might explain that to me. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, or maybe, maybe not, though, maybe there's something else that you can think of that gets them to get out of their own comfort zone and what they're going to see is, man, if I'm going to explain this to you, I'm going to have to use some of my reason and rationality. You know, when Jesus talked to people, he was full of grace and truth. And so there was the grace, there was the compassion, there was the emotional side of things, um, the spiritual side of things. And then there was also this other truth part, which was an important aspect. Um, the reason, the logic, and the stuff that a lot of people don't like to talk about. Yeah. I don't know if that will help just to get them in that mode. Um, Often we don't think about this stuff until we're challenged. You know, we're fine to say, I just believe, I just believe. Okay, well, go share your faith with someone who's an atheist and tell them that you just believe. Because I got, I got Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on my door every single week and they tell me they believe and they might believe even harder than many Christians. And they're certainly putting in a lot more work, uh, hours. Uh, the guys who knock on my door are retired, and they spend 30 to 40 hours a week um, in study and door-to-door. Um, and they certainly think, I, they, think I, they, they care about my soul. They want me to uh, um, come into the truth is how they put it. Um, and so... I put those two, and so what's the difference? They have a feeling they got a, you know, they got the Holy Spirit, not a person, uh, impersonal force, is what they think it is. And so now we're having a discussion. Well, what is the Spirit? Is it, we're both having some experience. They think it's a force. I think it's a person. Well, how do we figure out who it is, what it is? Go to the scriptures. And I'm using my reason now. And when it says things like, uh, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. When's the last time an impersonal force like gravity was grieved? It's not. Grieving something, as you grieve a person, right? The mind of the, it talks about the mind of the Spirit in, in Romans 8. Spirits don't have, uh, forces don't have minds. Um, I mean, you just go through all these different 
arguments, even personal pronouns are applied to the Spirit, pointing to. And so, again, now we're using reason and logic and all the other stuff that's supposed to be over there. I don't want to get into, but you need to um, if you want to have these important discussions. Yeah. Um, Tim, just the whole issue of uh, old earth, young earth thing. Yeah. Because I... um, I'm just wondering your opinion, maybe, because I, I know a young man whose church is insisting, you know, dogmatically on a young earth yeah. scenario, and it's it's undermining this, this kid's faith. And I just sure. wonder why churches would kind of fall on their sword and stake this yeah. along with the foundational truths of the church. I, I guess I just don't understand the issue well yeah. enough to understand that. Could well, you talk about I think that? What, what happens is, because um, I've uh, kind of been all over. I don't know where I stand. People ask me, are you young earth or old earth? And I say, I'm middle earth, you know, Tolkien. Okay, so, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Here's the, here's the creation views, <clears throat> broadly speaking. There's young earth creationism, and that is the idea that the universe was created 6,000 years ago, give or take. And so if you, six days, uh, 24-hour days, followed by the genealogies, you add up the number of years uh, you end up getting something like what James Usher came up with, which is the cre- creation of the universe in 4004 BC, you know, like 6,000 years ago. 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 from Abraham to now, uh, Jesus, Jesus to now, 2,000. Young earth creationism. Old earth creationism is uh, kind of has um, a bigger set of views within it, okay? So it's a broad, broader category. Young earthers stay pretty close. It's a tight system. It's like we, we kind of all believe this thing over here. Answers in Genesis, there's a few ministries um, that, that promote that. Old earth creationism, there's kind of different views. Uh, what they're doing is they're saying the earth and the universe are as old as people say it is, uh, the, the kind of contemporary view. Um, so the earth is 4.6 billion years old and the universe is like 13.7 billion years old. And how, but okay, now we got the, we got the Bible. Science seems to be saying it's old and, and um, at least some interpretations of the science. And what do we do with the Bible? It says six days. Well, it turns out the word yom in the, in the Hebrew of Genesis, which is translated day, well, they argue it can mean different things. And it's true. Um, in the day of the Lord, this kind of thing. In the day, in fact, Genesis 2 verse 4 says, when the Lord created. We, your translation probably says when. Or in the day the Lord created. It's talking about the whole creation. And the word there is yom. And so, and there's, so you go through day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven. Are those 24-hour days? And they would argue, well, they're not 24-hour, but they're still periods of time. Maybe millions of years, maybe whatever. Maybe they overlap, maybe they don't. Um, there's different ideas. Uh, some people say they are 24 hours, but there's a gap between in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Verse two or verse three. And God said, let there be light. So it turns out at the beginning of all the other days, it's in God said, and then there was God says he speaks and then it happens. And that happens. Genesis three, uh, Genesis one, verse three. And then the next day, uh, the next beginning of the next day. But what about this period of time or whatever's going on in Genesis 1 verse 1 and 2? Could be just a summary of everything that happened, then more specific. Some people hold that view. Some people say, no, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And then later in, and then later on, he starts to build some stuff on the earth. Um, uh, and so, um, I mean, that's another view. There's uh, so many. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is, this is what their point is. Their, their argument is that uh, what we know, we all agree on, is God created. How God created, the how question, uh, some argue it's in there, but it's, you just got to understand days a little differently. Some say this has nothing to do with how. And, and it could be both. Uh, it could be that it has, there's the how in there, but there's also other stuff. For example, you'll notice that the first three days are different from the last three days in, in one respect. There's, there's an evening and a morning in the first three, and evenings and mornings in the second three, but there's only a sun in the second three. And an evening and a morning, I mean, this morning, you got up and you saw the sun came up, and then at evening the sun goes down. What is an evening and a morning in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 if there's no sun? Of course, the young earther says, well, there's already light. Let there be light. So maybe there's something going, well, I guess you could say that. But you have to say there is something different about the first three days and the last three. The last three, the sun's created, day four and then day five, day six. You can see a sun going up and down if you're staying on the earth. You couldn't see that if you were on the earth for day one, two, and three. Um, But notice the sun's created on day four. It turns out when Moses is writing, he's even in this Egyptian culture. They worship the sun, okay? And so what what does Moses do? He says, no, God made that. And he doesn't even call it the sun. He doesn't give it a personal name. He doesn't even call it the sun. You'll probably recall, he says, the greater light and the lesser light, right? He's basically saying, God just makes these objects and they're secondary. They're like day four stuff. They're not the creation of everything. They're not the creator of all, like the Egyptians would have thought. Um, and so you almost have a response, a polemic against the, the deities of the time. And so it could be true that Moses is both doing two things. He's writing kind of a polemic. They have their creation um, stories. And Moses comes along and says, no, no, here's the true creation story. And, and, and in, in that, he responds by saying, yeah, and that sun, that greater light, it's, it's like day four, you know. And he made the stars also, you know like those hundreds of billions of stars he made also. Um, so that, and then there's another view called theistic evolution. I don't hold that view, um, but it's the idea that it holds the old earth and it holds to biological evolution. So if you believe in an old earth, you don't necessarily hold to evolution. In fact, old earth creationists don't hold to the macro story of evolution. It's theistic evolutionists do. So you have these three broad camps, young earth, no evolution, old earth, no evolution, and then old earth and evolution. And Christians fall into each one. The problem with what you're talking about, and I think I understand the the young earth view pretty well. Um, When I first discovered apologetics, it was through the young earth stuff. So I know, I mean, if you saw my shelf, I have one shelf, it's all just young earth material. And uh, there must be 200 DVDs and so on. Like, I spent a lot of money on their stuff. I've been to the museum. I took a grade nine class in their museum. I've been to the ark, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, and here's what I think is totally mistaken. Met Ken Ham, and this is what Ken Ham says. 
he says, it's God's word versus man's opinion, okay? And if that was the true, the true dichotomy, of course, everyone wants to be for God's word. No one wants to be for man's opinion when they're against each other. But this is how it's presented. That's not, and this is a confusion. I'll tell you why it's a confusion. God's, so you have God's word and you have nature. You have scripture and nature. Both of those things cannot be in conflict with each other because God reveals himself through each. He's the one who gave us scripture. He's the one who made nature. While both of those are interpreted, scripture is interpreted. We call it hermeneutics. I know even like the plainest, some of the plainest words in the Bible, like in the beginning, God, sometimes we got to do some heavy lifting in there. And the words mean, you know, when Jesus says, I'm the door, you could say, well, come on, it's a door. He's made of wood. You can knock on him. No, we take that to mean not a real door. You have to, we have to use our, our minds and inter- methods of interpretation. So it needs to be interpreted, but so does nature. Nature doesn't just facts, uh, isn't, 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 doesn't speak to us. Scientists speak. We look at nature and we interpret it. And so that's science. So now we have scripture, nature, hermeneutics, science. And what ends up happening is, here's what Ken Ham does. He says, it's God's word versus man's opinion, some scientist's opinion. And now he's comparing apples and oranges. He's treating his interpretation as if it's equivalent with God's word. No, no. The young earth view is is an interpretation. And so it's his interpretation versus the interpretation of, of scientists. And there's the confusion. He should be here, not here. Okay, does that make sense? And so as soon as he makes his interpretation equivalent with God's word, of course, no one wants to go against that. But the point is, there's a whole lot of uh, people who believe in the infallibility of the Bible. It doesn't fail. The inerrancy of scripture, it is without error. Uh, it's, it's inspired by God. They hold all those things and they don't hold the young earth view. They hold a different interpretation. And that interpretation lines up with the interpretation they take of science being the age of the earth being a certain age. Um, so that's what's going on. That's why it's, I think people get confused. They hear Ken Ham and they think, yeah, he's right. Let's get to the Bible. Forget about man's opinion. But it's his opinion. I mean, it's man's opinion versus man's opinion. It's his opinion of, of what the Bible says. And Genesis is, is one of the most uh, hotly debated sub, uh, texts in all of Scripture. Um, so you can't just say, well, that's my interpretation is God's word, and they're the same thing. No, no. Um, let's argue over the interpretations. And it turns out maybe he does have the right interpretation, but maybe he doesn't. And uh, so that's important. But as, keep in mind, this is all in-house discussion. And I don't go to atheists and start talking about young earth and old earth, okay? If you're an atheist, and you obviously, I, I've never met a young earth atheist, uh, it, you, and you believe in an old earth, I'm going to start there with you. And I'm going to say, well, do you believe in the Big Bang? And they're going to say, yeah, virtually they all do. I'll say, who banged it? You know, I want to I I use your own argument. The Big Bang says time, space, matter, and energy all came into existence from nothing, Okay, well, I got something better for you. It came into existence by a cause whose timeless, spaceless, immaterial, all-powerful, and so on. 
So I can explain that. They have to just say nothing produced the universe. That's worse than magic. At least magic, you get a rabbit coming out of a hat and a magician and stuff. This is a universe coming out from like no magician, no, uni- no nothing. Nothing doesn't produce anything, right? I think there's a song about that. Um, any other questions? Isn't it like, a, who's, is that like a old? Yeah. Uh, okay, you, you got one? Do you have a question? No, you don't have a question? Okay. I was just saying, I was looking at that, uh, the video that you did earlier. With yeah. People asking questions about the guy who's Chinese. And, yeah. Uh, it seems to me that although he seemed to be laughed at in the film, the guy who was asking, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Was really asking the right question. He because was. Because if the guy came back and said, well, I'm Chinese because my family moved to China when I was young and yeah. I, own, I have a Chinese passport. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a perfect reason to yeah. think he's so Chinese. He did a, you're right. He, that's good, very observant. He asked the right question. What do you mean by that? So if I was the guy with the mic, what I would have said was, I just believe I'm Chinese. And I would have said, what do you say, what do you say to that? Is he willing to say, because I believe it, therefore it's true? I don't, I, and maybe even say, I, just, I don't have any Chinese relatives. My parents are from wherever. Uh, Europe, they, they, you know, there's, they look like me, they got the same, uh, the genetics and my grandparents and, and, and then I say, but I still believe I'm Chinese. What do you say? And if he said, um, I don't know what he would have said at that. He might've said, well, if it's not hurting, I think he said something like it's not hurting anybody. You know, that was his, the minimal ethic in our culture, by the way, is as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. The problem is who's, 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 to say whether it hurts or it doesn't hurt anybody, right? We think about even, uh, you know, it's contentious uh, here because you guys, a couple years ago, same-sex marriage. It's not going to hurt anybody, right? Unless, of course, you're a baker or a uh, photographer and your convictions are such that you're not for it and, you, and, and then someone knocks on your door. I mean, this happened in Oregon, and $150,000 later, um, it turns out it did hurt somebody, you know? And what about the culture? Does, it, does these kinds of things hurt the culture in general? Does it hurt family? Does it, and so we often will use that, it, well, it's not going to hurt anybody. What, it, what if it hurts, you know, I have, uh, uh, you could imagine someone who is um, uh, bulimic or what's the word I'm looking for? Anorexic. And their identity, their, their, the way they view themselves is that they're too fat. They're overweight. And they're, you know, 80 pounds in real, like when you look at them. And uh, you're thinking, okay, is it, this, this doesn't hurt anyone else, but this is clearly hurting them, right? Uh, in fact, we still call this a mental illness. And it needs to be treated, Right? And so this, this idea of this mi- minimal ethic, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it sounds really good, right? Of course, nobody wants to hurt anybody. But we need to be talking about, well, okay, what, what qualifies for hurting? Like maybe not physically, but maybe it's emotional hurt. Maybe it's uh, other kinds of hurt that we need to talk about. And the reality is, in many of these cases, it's, I mean, what's going on right now is a social experiment. In 50 years, we'll, I guess we'll find out what hurt and what didn't. Um, 
today, it doesn't look like it's hurting as many people as people might think, but we'll have to just see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I heard there's some pretty cool stuff going yeah. on. Sure. I want so, to try those that so, cupcake and that those uh, what is it brownie a cookie? Yeah, it was cookies Black and cupcakes. Seed. And by the way, they didn't, I was disappointed they bring any samples. Oh, but they did a great cool. job with it. So my question is this: How would you? Because sometimes when we listen to talks and it's, it's science versus Christians, and oh, science is bad, Christian. You know. Yeah. How would we? You know, what would you say? How do we encourage Christians to go into scientific, you know, endeavors or science? Science, you know. Yeah, backgrounds and stuff. that's a good question. What I would, uh, what I found very encouraging and interesting. Uh, so I'm just going to speak kind of um, autobiographically. But I, so I went to the public school system, um, and we learned about all these guys like Sir Isaac Newton and James Clerk Maxwell and Robert Boyle. We learned about all these scientists, and they, many of them have names, uh, units named after them. And laws of physics named after them, and chemistry, and, and biology, Gregor Mendel. And yet, nobody informed us that these were, many of these were Bible-believing Christians. Uh, all of them were theists, uh, when you kind of go through the list, or virtually all of them. And many of them, were, I mean, Newton actually wrote more on theology than he did on, on science. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible. This was, I mean, theology was the mother of all the, of all the disciplines, academic disciplines. Now you talk to people about theology, oh, you're, what, you're in seminary, you're taking, that's like considered the lowest of the, why would you do that, you know? Uh, but at one point, this was like everybody studied theology. Darwin studied theology. Uh, so what I would say to the young people is, look at the tradition we come from, like, the Christian tradition is, is full of brilliant scientists, and that's the way it should be. And so, who knows? We may have a future, you know, Newton in the room. You know, this is, uh, I was going to say Mary Curry, but she died from radiation poison because she worked with radioactive materials. But I'm trying to think of female, look, I'm looking at the girls here, female scientists. But you, you could be the next, you know, great scientist. And we, that's what we need. Uh, it turns out that the, the image from the, that most people have of the sciences is science is an atheistic enterprise. That when I give a talk on this, I quote uh, Lawrence Krauss. And uh, he's a very rabid atheist. And uh, he wrote an article in The New Yorker. The title was, All Scientists Should Be Militant Atheists. And he goes through and he says, so quote, Science is an atheistic enterprise. How many people are reading that? I'm sure the New Yorker, thousands of people read that article and just were nodding their head. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. Science is an atheistic enterprise. Not true. That is the most ignorant uh, uh, statement. It's not a scientific statement. That's the most ignorant statement um, that you could make because, I mean, it betrays just, it it ignores um, the last 300 years of, of history, of the birth of the sciences from a guy like Francis Bacon, going all the way till, till today. And we still have Nobel Prize winning Christian scientists today. Um, but all you hear about is Bill Nye, you know, <laughs> who's, as far as I'm concerned, not even a real scientist. So what's that? Oh yeah. Readings to believe. So 
talked about young earth creation and answers in Genesis being kind of like the go-to. You guys have heard of them, probably. Uh, they're the ones who built the museum and the ark and all that stuff. And probably the old earth creationist group that you should be aware of is um, Reasons to Believe. And so, in Cal- so Stand to Reasons in California, and Hugh Ross um, is not too far from where we are at Reasons to Believe. And he's actually a Canadian uh, uh, astrophysicist and uh, a very smart man um, and has a very cool testimony. Uh, he'd never even met a Christian. It's not surprising, actually, in Canada. He never, never even met a Christian uh, until he was going to UCLA, I think, um, in university. So, yeah. And then the last one is BioLogos. And uh, it represented the other camp. So they would be the uh, kind of the um, main, I don't, there, there's others, I'm sure, but the main um, organization representing theistic evolution. So those are kind of the three main hubs. If you wanted information on any of those views, you'd go to one of those sites. And by the way, you mentioned BioLogos. This year, um, we were in Rhode Island for a big philosophical theological conference, and I got to attend um, one event. Crossway has published a book. It's about a thousand pages, and it's written by some of the most brilliant intelligent design um, scientists, theologians. Wayne Grudem uh, is the editor for the theological part, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with him. Um, and then uh, there's a full, uh, section on philosophy, and it's got guys like J.P. Moreland, who I'm a huge uh, fan of, and a couple other guys. And they've, it's basically a, a critique of theistic evolution. So BioLogos was there kind of in the crowd, and these guys were pre- presenting uh, some of the uh, papers or chapters out of the book. And uh, if you want one book kind of, after reading BioLogos, you wanted one book that responds to some of their stuff because they interact directly with their stuff. Um, thousand pages. It's like the one-stop shop. And uh, I, I, I got a pre-thing sent to me, and I just like, it's really good. Um, yeah, so check that out. <laughs>